America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We appreciate you making time for us there on your dial. Certainly a lot happening in the world today, a lot going on in agriculture specifically, but there's more news coming from the outside markets that are certainly impacting the world of ag, notably inflation still in the headlines. This morning, we saw the report from Uncle Sam that food and, or excuse me, core CPI climbed considerably over last year, 6.6% jump from a year ago. That is the highest level since 1982. We did end up seeing total inflation uh, that includes energy and housing and all the other costs climbed 8.2% year over year. So inflation still very much with us. There is a bright side to that inflation print if you are a Social Security recipient. It was announced that given the high inflation levels, Pay, uh, excuse me, Social Security recipients are going to receive an 8.7% increase in their total benefits. So there's a little bit of bright side, though that would be a little bit more perhaps inflationary pressure as that money makes its way out into the economy. We'll talk about that, no doubt, and the impact on the markets over the next several weeks as these factors continue to drive things. But in the meantime, we're going to talk through other issues, notably wean to harvest biosecurity on the farm. We'll be touching base with Dr. Megan Niederwerder of the Swine Health Information Center here in just a moment. And in segment two, we're going to talk dairy with Tanner Emke, the lead dairy economist over at CoBank. And in segment three, South Dakota Farm Bureau is gearing up for farm bill discussions across that state. Their president, Scott Vanderwall, will join us likely from a combine here in segment three. And we're going to close the show by taking a look at the Iowa Soybean Association's work on water and the partnerships they are finding to get that progress made even faster. But let's kick it off here with our with our friend, Dr. Megan Niederwerder at, at Schick. Megan, you're the associate director over there. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Let's talk about well, the work that's being done over at Schick. Megan, we talked to Dr. Paul Sundberg monthly on this podcast with his disease monitoring reports. But of course, the organization does a lot more than that. Can you tell us what you're working on over at Schick? Yes. Yeah, so we have formed a collaborative research program with the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, as well as the Pork Checkoff, to focus our efforts on discovering new techniques and technologies to improve the wean to harvest biosecurity. And we have launched this program. It's a $2.3 million program. We are uh, identifying the research priorities on both the transport side as well as the site side. So thinking about a really comprehensive approach to increasing wean to harvest biosecurity. Megan, of course, when we talk to Dr. Sundberg, we talk a lot about biosecurity. I know that was uh, really in the core of Schick's founding. How is this focus, the, the shift to wean to harvest, how is that different from the work Schick has done in the past? Yes, the swine disease reporting system and our rapid response outbreak investigations, the data that has been generated by those ongoing programs uh, by the Swine Health Information Center has really identified a vulnerability in the U.S. swine industry with regards to when pigs are becoming infected with specific pathogens such as PERS and PEDV, also actinobacillus. And so what those uh, programs and teams were able to do is identify that oftentimes pigs are placed into the nursery or into the grow finish phase negative for these pathogens and then become infected during the growing phase. And so when we looked at that data that had been generated, we started identifying the need to investigate cost-effective and implementable tools in that wean to harvest phase that could improve biosecurity, both at the site level, so thinking about ways to uh, sense decontamination or sense disinfection of pathogens after cleaning the pens, also thinking about safer ways to both load and unload pigs. How can we disinfect the chute and how can we think about uh, preventing pathogen transfer from the, the truck back to the farm? And thinking about that at the market as well, looking at the packing plant or other secondary markets, how do we reduce the pathogen transfer 
from those first points of concentration back to the farm. So we're really trying to look at this thinking outside the box and alternative so that again we can think about and discover these cost-effective tools that then can provide the greatest value to producers to reduce disease load in that wean to harvest phase. And those two key components are so vital, cost effectiveness and implementable, the ability to do it even when things are busy and hectic on the farm. That's so crucial. Megan, given that this is a new focus area for Schick, I imagine that research is underway. How long do you expect the research gathering phase to take before it's the the implementable proposal stage? Yeah, we've been working with task forces over the last several weeks to identify the research priorities. We anticipate uh, releasing our request for proposals in the next two weeks. And that request for proposals will not only outline how researchers can uh, submit grant proposals, but also it will identify these research priorities that we were able to uh, uh, outline based on feedback from our task forces. So then we will review those proposals, we will select proposals for funding, and we anticipate that the research will go on for the next one to two years. But as those research results come in, we will absolutely release those and make those known to producers so that they can immediately implement those cost-effective tools and technologies on the farm to really get the, the greatest value uh, the quickest way possible. Megan, from your perspective, watching the swine industry as a whole from, from the disease angle, is this the wean to harvest area currently the biggest blind spot we have in production as far as biosecurity weaknesses? Yes. Yeah, so when we think about endemic diseases such as PERS and PEDV, and we know that the pigs are becoming infected after weaning, so when they go into the nursery or the grow finish, that, I, that, that allows us to identify or have that knowledge that when pigs are becoming infected with endemic pathogens at that specific age, age group, we also know that likely that age group is then most vulnerable to any new diseases or any foreign animal disease. And so when we think about uh, foreign animal disease such as ASF, uh, coming into the country and potentially infecting pigs, if we know that there's a certain age group that already has some biosecurity vulnerabilities or have gaps that we need to fill, if we can fill those and reduce endemic disease pressure in that age group, we also can anticipate that that age group would be better protected against foreign animal diseases and ASF. So let's do it now before we have a foreign animal disease introduced and hopefully that will help us prevent that disease from being entering the swine herd. Absolutely. Megan, we wish you the best of luck as this research is ongoing and no doubt we'll have you back on the program to help share some of the insights you develop through the Schick Wean to Harvest Biosecurity Program. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Megan Niederwerder of the Swine Health Information Center. You can learn more at swinehealth.org. And stick around. We're going to be talking dairy with Tanner Emke from CoBank when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two ingredients in pet food. Uh, some of the efforts of the Market Development Action Team, we, we ask a lot out of chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging. Pet food space in particular, it's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these uh, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which of course could be made from corn. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a nine to five. It's your life's work. 
That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. Last week, we had dairy on our minds as the World Dairy Expo was happening up in Madison, Wisconsin. We spoke with Corey Geiger there from Hordes Dairymen at the event, talking about the enthusiasm and the excitement that was on hand for a lot of the participants. Joining us now with a look at the economic situation for dairy producers is Tanner Emke. He's the lead economist for dairy over at CoBank. He's on their Knowledge Exchange Division. Tanner, thanks so much for joining us today. Morning, Mike. Great to be with you. You were up at World Dairy Expo, Tanner. What was uh, what were you bringing to the table up there? What were you presenting on? Well, Mike, there was a lot to talk about uh, this year after coming off of a very uh, uh, strong year on profits for most uh, dairy producers. I mean, we had uh, record high milk prices, and although uh, feed costs were uh, coming up uh, to catch up with milk prices, uh, there was still quite a profitable margin there for a lot of producers. And as we head into 2023, uh, we're starting to see that uh, margin compression across the industry. And I think that's something really on the minds of a lot of producers uh, as we head into the fall here, that they need to be mindful of that margin going forward as uh, the cost of feed, uh, of grain, uh, of hay, uh, of all the important inputs that are required uh, to uh, produce milk uh, continue to go up uh, as we continue to see uh, milk prices remain uh, in this uh, path of, say, milk moderation. I think the highs are in for milk prices. And so going forward, we need to be mindful of that gap between cost and uh, revenue. Tanner, that's a huge point. I'm so glad you raised margin compression. This is obviously going to be an overriding issue for a lot of dairy producers. The folks I've spoken to, be they dairy producers or cattle feeders, holding out hope that harvest was going to come by, they'd be able to secure supplies at a little bit of a discount. Not so much uh, developing. They're out in the countryside. What are you hearing? How are producers grappling with this compression? Well, I think what a lot of producers are doing uh, in, in anticipation of what's going to come uh, in 2023 is moving some of their expenses uh, from 2023 into 2022 by uh, forward contracting, by securing those feed supplies early, and uh, being proactive uh, on marketing. And I think uh, going forward, uh, there's always an opportunity here uh, that 
knowing that the markets are the way they are, that volatility never goes away, that the, those, uh, those producers who are mindful of markets and, and are adept at using those uh, tools at their disposal are able to uh, lock in those profits uh, longer term. Uh, now, that being said, uh, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, could create more volatility and more marketing opportunities going forward. Uh, we've got a lot of issues out there geopolitically, Mike, that, uh, that are constantly in the headlines uh, that uh, may create marketing opportunities uh, going forward. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Tanner. We're going to talk about those geopolitical opportunities in a second. Before we get there, though, I'd like to get an update on consolidation in the dairy space. High input prices certainly would seem to tip the hand to a larger operation. Are we seeing consolidation still in existence here throughout the industry? Yeah, consolidation, Mike, is a story that really never stops uh, across all of agriculture, really. And uh, we're still seeing those numbers tick up on uh, average uh, size of uh, dairy farms in the U.S. And we're seeing a continued migration uh, into the central states of the U.S. where land is more abundant, water is more abundant, feed is cheaper. And we're seeing those numbers play out in the USDA milk production reports of states like Texas and South Dakota, really showing uh, a lot more growth. Uh, than any other place in the country because uh, there is more uh, re there are more resources there uh, to grow a farm and so of course it's going to be those factors there that uh, really push consolidation I think and it's going to be harder going forward for these uh, producers uh, that are in high cost environments where land is not cheap uh, where feed is not cheap where labor is not cheap uh, that they're going to be under pressure uh, to grow that herd. There's also base programs with co-ops that also uh, create some uh, hurdles to expansion. So I think it really comes down to the focus of where can a uh, farmer grow their herd, and uh, that increasingly looks like it's going to be in those central states uh, within the U.S. Indeed, it does certainly see them. Uh, dairy operators continue to be large land purchasers in that neck of the woods. Tanner, looking at total milk production, given all the fluctuations happening in the industry, what's the trend here in 2022? Well, we're on a, a steadle, steadily uh, rising trend, uh, just incremental growth really in uh, production. And a lot of that really is coming from pro the productivity side. Uh, on the farm. So it's not so much coming from herd growth as it is from uh, production per cow and it is really owed to the management acumen, uh, if you will, of the U.S. dairy producer. So when you look at uh, the incremental growth in the herd size and the continued growth in productivity, we're, gonna, we're looking at uh, a growing milk supply heading into 2023. We think that momentum is going to carry forward uh, in the opening months of 2023, but at some point we think that growth is going to have to stop as we see a continued moderation in milk prices. Now, that being said, Mike, we always have to throw that asterisk in there that because of the volatility that we're seeing in uh, geopolitics and energy markets and commodity markets, uh, we could continue to see more export demand uh, come back to the U.S., and that would provide a stronger floor, if you will, uh, under milk prices and what the farmer gets paid. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up, Tanner, and it sparked a question here. We've got the milk supply growing in this country in 2022, despite all of the headwinds dairy producers have faced this past year. Are there many other countries that can say that, or are most other folks seeing milk production decline? Well, the longer-term trends here for our competitors, specifically Europe and New Zealand, uh, they've been under a lot of stress here with uh, regulatory uh, efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by reducing cow numbers, essentially, is how they're, they're planning on doing that. And uh, that is going to be restricting their abilities uh, to grow uh, their herd. Now, that being said, those producers are also working at producing uh, or getting more milk out of the cow uh, by improving productivity. And so we are starting to see a recovery uh, a slight recovery over in Europe and uh, some improved weather over in uh, New Zealand. And so I think uh, there is uh, a global trend here for incremental recovery in uh, milk production, but I wouldn't say that it's going to be um, a tidal wave of milk coming at us uh, be, given the restrictions that we're seeing overseas. I think it's going to be an incremental step-by-step -step recovery, and that is going to add just gradual pressure over time on milk prices.
Tanner, you mentioned Europe, you mentioned New Zealand, the environmental, the regulatory regime those producers are facing does seem like a challenge. It was announced here one or two days ago that New Zealand has proposed a new tax on greenhouse gases that farm animals make. Obviously, federated farmers in New Zealand very frustrated by this. They say it would rip the guts out of small town New Zealand. But looking out, put on your economist hat 5, 10, 15 years from now, where do these moves by our competitors leave U.S. dairy? Is, is it as bright a picture as it looks to a layman like me? Well, absolutely, Mike. I think uh, I agree totally with uh, that viewpoint. Uh, the longer-term view for uh, dairy really is a, a bright spot, I'd say. And, I, and I'd go further to say it's probably the brightest spot in all of agriculture, really. Uh, when you think about these uh, restrictions with uh, New Zealand and Europe on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and at the same time, that's coupled with continued per capita growth in dairy product consumption, not only in the United States, but around the world. We have, I think, a bright spot and a very uh, positive store for dairy long-term, and a lot of that growth is going to happen right here in the United States. We've got um, the view in this country that we're going to be tackling greenhouse gas emissions through technology and improved management. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of the support of so many industry organizations. So I think when all of that comes into an alignment, dairy's got a very bright story here in the U.S. And Tanner, let's talk about timing of when that alignment could happen. Of course, relying on politicians, so timing is always variable. But do you see this increase in exports coming one, two, three years from now, or is it five to ten years away? Well, Mike, this year alone, we've had uh, record exports, and uh, that was owed uh, a lot to just very strong cheese demand to our customers in Mexico and overseas in Asia. A lot of uh, whey ex exports, uh, butter exports were record high or very strong. So I think that um, going forward, you know, we're always going to see some bumps, I think, uh, given the value of the strong dollar, uh, given some of these uh, geopolitical issues perhaps that may arise. Um, so I think uh, longer term, though, that view is, I think, still intact, that uh, exports are going to be the strong uh, growth spot for U.S. dairy. Well, that'd be good news for a lot of American dairy producers out there. Tanner M. Key, lead economist for dairy at CoBank. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tanner. Thanks for having me, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk to Scott Vanderwall, president of the South Dakota Farm Bureau, when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two ingredients in pet food. Um, some of the efforts of the Market Development Action Team, we, we ask a lot on a chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging. Pet food space in particular, it's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these uh, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which of course could be made from corn. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Another soybean sale announced to China this morning on the Daily Wire. 264,000 metric tons for the 22-23 marketing year. Also 242,000 metric tons of beans to unknown destinations for the 22-23 marketing year. The trade, going to probably assume that is China. That's just one of the stories we're watching in the market here this morning. Also, though, the CPI release 0.4% month-on-month higher in September, double the expectation of analysts and up from 0.1% the previous month. The headline CPI number was up 8.2% year-on-year in September, down from 8.3% the previous month, but above the analyst expectations of 8.1%. The VIX trading up near 33 this morning. The dollar index is up near 114 amid those inflation numbers that came out higher than expected. It seems like traders 
Already forgotten about yesterday's crop report as we revert back to trading the headlines with the inflation data. We see that the Algo computers, they're trading the headlines and technical signals and momentum changes. We've seen grains pull back here as we've worked through our morning with corn, beans, wheat, all to the downside with wheat and beans down about uh, anywhere from about 9 to 11, 12 cents with corn 6 to 8 cents lower as we work through the morning trade. Mixed action over the livestock complex, the stock market coming back off of its lows, but did sell off over 500 points at one point while crude oil's down about 1% as we work through the morning trade. Now, of course, yesterday's WASDE report from USDA gave us a few surprises, including a soybean yield estimate for the U.S. under 50 bushels an acre. As we saw, the balance sheets tighten up some more and smaller crops seem to be getting smaller. We'll have to see if the trade picks back up on those fundamental ideas as we work through the day. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for keeping it tuned here to AOA. You know, this is the time of year a lot of folks tuning in might have some time to think. Well, they're sitting in the cabs, their combines, and their tractors running that grain, getting those trucks set up and run to the local elevators. And while you're thinking, you might be thinking about what's ahead for agriculture and how you can make an impact. And then once harvest is over, a lot of you folks will be gathering together at meetings around the country to talk about farm policy. One of those big meetings will be happening in South Dakota in Rapid City, November 18th the 19th, the 105th South Dakota Farm Bureau Annual Convention. Thinking about that, but there's a lot to cover before we get to convention. Joining us now for an update is Scott Vanderwall, president of the South Dakota Farm Bureau. And Scott, did we catch you in a combine today? Good morning, Mike. Yeah, I'm getting things fueled up and it's dry and windy, so we'll be going pretty soon here. we got one day of soybeans left. It would have been done yesterday, but the rains came and delayed it a little bit. Yeah, I saw those little showers making their way across, created some trouble for a lot of growers trying to get those crops out. Scott, bring us up to speed. How's harvest going so far there in your neck of the woods in South Dakota? Well, most guys are pretty well done with soybeans now, and, and things have slowed down at the processing plant right here at Volga. Uh, several people are into corn, and we're hoping to start tomorrow or the next day. Uh, soybean yields in this area, I think, were just a little bit below what we maybe thought they would be. And uh, east, uh, well, over by Brookings, we were sh real short of moisture, so uh, yields were kind of short there. And, and about 10 miles away, we got more rain at some fields we farmed, but they, they still weren't a lot better. So I think we've, we've seen that uh, just by the report from yesterday, too, that the, that's kind of a nationwide thing. Absolutely, it is, Scott. And of course, there at Volga, you're on that kind of dividing line between the real dryness in southeastern South Dakota and then to the, the more normal growing season to the north. How did your farm end up? How does that corn yield look as you get ready to get into those fields? I think the corn yields relative to soybeans are going to be a little bit better. Uh, when we go out and do kernel counts, uh, it looks pretty nice. So uh, we'll sure be thankful for that. Uh, it'll be a lot like last year, I think. All right. Well, we'll know those numbers here when we get to November, of course, at convention time. But Scott, before we get there, I want to talk about some of the things you've been doing this past year. It's been a busy year for South Dakota Farm Bureau. It was a busy year for you. You had the chance to go to D.C. You testified on behalf of a piece of legislation. Scott, what was it that took you out there? 
It was a bill that was introduced by Senator Thune and, and some other friends of agriculture called the Livestock Regulatory Protection Act, and it was in the Senate the Environment and Public Works Committee. And I was asked to per, uh, testify in per, uh, favor of that. And what the bill would do is prevent the EPA from regulating agriculture and greenhouse gas emissions. And I made the point that we're always looking for ways to improve in agriculture, and we've been doing that for decades now. And we've made tremendous gains. Uh, there's a lot of concern about the greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, I made the point that emissions per unit of production have increased, uh, decreased tremendously uh, as far as the number of uh, units of production, whether it's a uh, hundred weight of milk or bushels or, or whatever it might be. And uh, we made the message that uh, we have to use incentives rather than regulations and the, and the EPA carrying a big stick. Uh, it's always been proven uh, time and time again that farmers react better to incentives rather than having somebody hold something over their heads. And uh, we just made that point that we're always trying to do the right thing, and we don't need to be told by the, the heavy hand of government to do it. Absolutely. You know, we just talked with Tanner about the challenges in Europe and New Zealand for those dairy producers against that regulatory change over there. We'd hate to see that come to the U.S. Scott, after your testimony, bringing up the, the work that farmers have done on climate change voluntarily so far, what was the reaction? Do you, do you think that message is sinking in in D.C.? Well, it's really political, and, and that's an interesting question because uh, uh, it was obviously people were, were along party lines. We had some from the, the liberal side of the aisle that are just convinced that agriculture is a habitual polluter and we have to be told what to do. And uh, they, one, part, one senator made the point that this bill, all it does is authorize us to pollute. And I didn't get a chance to react to that. It was just a, a statement that he made rather than a question. But the, the answer I would have given is, is Senator, this is not about giving a license to agriculture to pollute. It's about how we incentivize people to take care of the, the land and the resources and that we're already doing that. And uh, again, like I said, it's, it's incentives rather than carrying a big stick. It certainly is. Incentives matter, and they do shape people's behavior. Scott, there's uh, Senator Thune, of course, in the news again. A recent bill, a proposal out there to improve livestock disaster in, uh, assistance. This is a bipartisan bill from Senator Thune and Lujan down there in New Mexico. Uh, South Dakota Farm Bureau taking a, 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 an opinion on this a piece of legislation quite well, yet? Yes, we think that's a good idea from the American Farm Bureau perspective as well. Uh, and historically, these disaster uh, bills have been passed. You know, they take a while. It, it's all political after a storm or, or uh, things like a, a huge drought where people are financially severely impacted. And they have to pass that bill and get the president to sign it. And it, it has to be, uh, the funding has to be authorized for it. And it just takes months or even years to actually get the funds to the people that really need it. And that's been real frustrating for people because you can always, if you were financially uh, uh, damaged severely, you could be out of business before that funding arrives. And so the, the senators are, are proposing this bill to expedite that process and make that go a lot quicker and more smoothly. That would be good news. You know, we talked with Jackie Fatka earlier in the week about some COVID funding that's just going out to food workers here two and a half years after the COVID pandemic got started. It would be nice to accelerate that process for growers. And Scott, to that end, I imagine you're hearing a lot of thoughts from your member farmers around the state. What is the South Dakota Farm Bureau looking to discuss about the farm bill here coming in 2023? Yeah, this is one of the most important things that, that we do about every four years uh, to get involved in that. And we're right, to, right down the line with American Farm Bureau, uh, really four uh, major things. First of all is to hold the baseline funding where it is uh, in terms of dollars. So we're not asking for more, but we want to hold it together. Um, and then also have a unified farm bill, which means the farm part of the bill along with the Food and Nutrition Act. Uh, because if, if those two get separated, uh, there's, there's only like uh, 37 or 45, uh, something like that, people in Congress in the House of Representatives that actually have uh, production agriculture in their districts, and, and they would lose interest in the farm bill uh, side of this real quickly. So the unified bill is, is important. We're also saying do no harm to crop insurance. The risk management tools hand-in-hand uh, -hand with the commodity programs are very important. And uh, then also uh, ensure that the county offices are adequately staffed and have the resources to help people with technical assistance and things like that. That last one is a great point. Scott, have you seen challenges out there in South Dakota with your uh, your USDA offices, FSA offices staying staffed? 
In my area, we have not. Uh, they've had a lot of turnover. Uh, just about everybody in that office is new in the last couple of years. Uh, but I do hear of places where uh, staffing is really hard to come by. Uh, a lot of times they're farmers' wives, and, and uh, uh, it's hard to find people to work. And, and so they need to work a little harder on getting uh, those uh, areas staffed. NRCS is probably even more uh, uh, remarkable than, than the FSA as far as the staffing requirements go. Uh, we've seen uh, district conservation officers come and go, and, and it's kind of like musical chairs sometimes. Uh, so we're hoping that uh, they improve on that as well. Scott, in your conversation with legislators and regulators thinking about crop insurance for this next farm bill, do they seem to understand that the elevated input prices are, are raising the risk for farmers here around the country? Well, I think that's a good question, and that's part of the education process that we have to go through with people and help them understand how these different things affect us with the higher input costs and everything that we have. Uh, just from 21 to 22, we, we saw about a $200 increase per acre in our costs uh, for raising a corn crop. And I think it's going to go even higher for next year. And to help them understand, not only we do, do we have those higher costs, but there's uh, certainly a lot, uh, a lot more risk when you have those higher costs involved. And, and uh, we just uh, try to help them understand that, to draw a picture, show them the numbers, whatever it takes. <laughs> draw a picture. Sometimes that's what it takes. And there will be a lot of new faces in D.C. following this next midterm election. The work to educate them will be crucial. And Scott, I know you'll be connecting with a lot of your farmer members from across South Dakota there in November at the annual convention. You'll be talking about these issues and kind of taking the pulse of the South Dakota Farm Bureau community, won't you? We certainly will. And, and the major focus of our state conventions, of course, is the policy development. Our counties have been meeting and, and all members are, uh, all voting members are welcome to bring ideas that they think ought to be Farm Bureau policy. And that goes through the process at the county, state, and then ultimately the national level if it's a national concern. And uh, that's what we're really proud of because we can truly say that our policy is put in place in the book by our members on a grassroots basis. And we'll be uh, meeting, and, and our, um, our theme for the convention is writing for the brand, Be Legendary. And what that's all about is, is telling our story and helping people understand agriculture uh, so they understand uh, not only the good things, but also the challenges that we have, whether it's uh, the financial things we talked about just a little bit ago, uh, so farm succession from one generation to another is a big issue that's out here as well. And helping uh, policymakers understand all those things is very important. Indeed it is. There's going to be a great lineup of keynote speakers and panelists. I'm really excited. I'll be in town acting as the MC for the South Dakota Farm Bureau Annual Convention. It's going to be a lot of fun. Scott, before we let you go, if you've got listeners uh, tuning in, they want to get there, but maybe they're not registered yet, where can they go to, uh, to get all signed up? They can go to sdfarm.info or uh, sdfbf.org is in South Dakota Farm Bureau Federation.org. Uh, either one of those will get you to the website and you can uh, register the con for the convention. And we're certainly looking forward to the speakers that will be uh, talking to us about uh, uh, feeding the world and explaining to people how we do that. And we certainly are looking forward to having you back as the MC as well. Yeah, it's always a lot of fun, folks. If you have a chance to make it down there to Rapid City, November 18th and 19th, do so for the 105th Annual South Dakota Farm Bureau Convention. We've been talking to Scott Vanderwall, president of South Dakota Farm Bureau. Scott, we wish you the best of luck as harvest continues and stay safe. Okay, thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And folks, stay tuned. We're going to talk with Roger Wolf from the Iowa Soybean Association about their water commitments going forward. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength, a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting Blindness. 
Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a 9 to 5. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance. Plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two ingredients in pet food. Uh, some of the efforts of the Market Development Action Team, we, we ask a lot out of chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging. Pet food space in particular, it's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins, and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these uh, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which, of course, could be made from corn. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. It's advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison Help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save Poison Help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. Two weeks ago, on October 4th, we saw a case go before the Supreme Court, the Waters of the U.S. case, the Sacketts versus the EPA. And it's got me thinking that water usage and agriculture's impact on water is so huge, and it will be garnering more political focus in years to come, which is why we're seeing the ag industry be proactive in a lot of different ways about water. One of the folks who is doing that is Roger Wolf. He is at the Iowa Soybean Association. He serves is the co-director for their research center for farming innovation and he has been looking at water in particular for some time roger thank you so much for joining us today oh, glad to be with you mike i'd like to talk about the iowa soybeans membership in the u.s water alliance and the the one water idea roger can you tell us what it is that, uh, that the u.s water alliance is is working on yeah, Mike, uh, there, there's really a robust history here uh, US, with the U.S. Water Alliance and, and really with Iowa Soybean Association going way back. And, and, it, and uh, they have what's called a um, uh, one-water approach to water management, and, and their, their vision is all about creating a sustainable water future, and uh, their mission is about driving one-water breakthroughs that transform the environment, economy, and society, and it's it's really that mission where ISA interfaces and agriculture can interface on this topic. And and you mentioned the Clean Water Act, the Clean Water Act birthday parties coming up here October 18th, it's 50 year anniversary. And you know, agriculture, well exempt uh, for most of the Clean Water Act. Um, you know, we do have a, a an interest, a role, and a responsibility. Uh, to figure out uh, how we interface with water. And that's one of the things we've been championing at ISA for a good long time, going way back. My first exposure was in the 1990s, and then we've been in the business of working on it. And this whole interface with, you know, uh, trying to make it work um, as one water, um, connecting with the utilities downstream, the Gulf of Mexico. So there's a lot to unpack here, but... Um, but there's quite a, a history of innovation and, and commitment uh, in, on farms and in watersheds throughout Iowa and, and, and across the country. There certainly is. And those initiatives have been accelerating, I would say, since the, the early 2010s. We saw Iowa put the voluntary nutrient reduction strategy in place. We've seen movements up and down the Mississippi River Basin. But I'm curious, Roger, when you're working with the U.S. Water Alliance, there's not a lot of ag groups necessarily a part of that quite yet. What are the conversations like? How do they view agriculture being a part of this mission? Yeah, so uh, you got to go back in time. Um, and uh, it started out uh, back in around 2010, I would say, and and uh, it was a realization pri primarily from um, utilities, uh, wastewater, drinking water utilities, uh, cities, uh, a lot of consultants uh, groups that work with those folks, and this realization that you know, truly water is integrated, um, whether it's storm water, water in, you know, coming from watersheds, draining downstream, and, and there's a lot of interrelatedness. And so um, these utilities uh, realized they had to build a relationship with agriculture. And, you know, frankly, the Clean Water Act divides us in some ways. You know, it bifurcates us, and, and it addresses the issues kind of one one thing at a time, and and so it it, it defies the integration, and and so uh, this is what the alliance really championed from the beginning. And uh, meanwhile, you know, agriculture was looking for ways to be innovative, proactive, uh, science-based. You know, trying to make these things resonate on farms in watersheds, and and we've been do working on those issues, but we've never really integrated with with our cities, and so. You know, the, the thing that um, happened in Iowa with the nutrient reduction strategy uh, really brought us together. And, and I, I would always tell the alliance that um, we're operationalizing the one water approach in Iowa. And the stakeholders that are working together on this issue are, are really, it's kind of an experiment. But at the same time, we're trying to find value for the upstream farmers and values for the downstream uh, stakeholders as well. So fairly complicated work but uh you know we've been making progress um and uh you know we got a lot of work to do uh but 
the alliance really wanted agriculture at the table, and so the work that we were doing uh, brought that story, and and uh, uh, we've been evolving ever since. That's good to hear. Roger, what's next? I mean, where can or when do you expect farmers to start integrating or being a part of all of this? Well, you know, uh, as you look around the state, uh, we have really islands of, of really good progress. And, and those, it's, it's where we have resource investments and resource investments both in people, um, organizations, uh, you know, I, and I, I'm speaking specifically of, of ag retail and soil and water conservation districts and farmers and, and where we have downstream interests like uh, city of Cedar Rapids, um, you know, we see the source water issues coming to light, uh, USDA putting dollars, Iowa Department of Agriculture putting dollars in, into supporting and farmers are experimenting. They're becoming more aware. They're experimenting. They're implementing uh, both in-field and edge-of-field practices. So you're, 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 you see signs of this. And, and so now the question is, how do we get to scale? Um, and, and the magnitude of scale is, is really important. We're not going to see uh, the big changes downstream until we, we get uh, a lot more scale up of these practices. So. It's a work in progress, um, and and uh, we're seeing me more resources being invested. I think uh, agriculture is going to see enormous uh, investments coming from USDA with the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed, the climate smart practices that were implemented. So, a lot to a lot to be said here. Absolutely. A lot of things coming together here over the next couple of years. Keep up to date, listeners, on what's happening here in the water space. It will be shaping agriculture. We've been speaking with Roger Wolf, director at the Iowa Soybean Association. Roger, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be on. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk agriculture and we'll do it all right here with on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like waterhemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved.